So when people move into Chicago, I always tell them, you know, we have three great seasons in Chicago. The summer is wonderful. The fall is spectacular. You got to learn to just lean into winter, embrace the cold and the snow. and It's all good. I said, but spring is bad. You just have to prepare for, uh, you know, for, I don't know, 40 degrees and raining. You go to a Cubs game and it's, uh, take a parka. It's just bad. It's just bad in Chicago for spring. So today <laughs> is really a gift, and I hope you take advantage of it. Um, So those of us who choose to be uh, disciples of Jesus, those of us who say we want to follow Christ, we look to him for uh, moral authority and guidance. We also look to him to be more than just a moral reformer and more than just a good teacher, but to be the the son of God and, and a savior. Those who choose to align with Jesus are expected to become more like him over time. We are expected to become more gracious and more generous and and to have our hearts transformed and to be more others-focused. That's just just what we're signing up for, that God is going to work in our heart and transform us in that direction. And one of the things that is especially prominent on that list is that we should become more gracious and generous generous with our heart, generous with our home, generous with our time, generous with our talents and our resources, generous with our money. So to the, like God has been generous with us, right? He reaches down to us. He doesn't love us because we're lovable. He loves us because he's God. And, and, and because God is generous with us, we should pay that forward and be generous with other people. Now, on this list of things that I mentioned. The one that always jumps out is money. And it jumps out in part because Jesus keeps bringing it up over and over and over again. And it jumps out at us also because uh, money isn't slips of paper. It's not little green and white pieces of paper. Money is a placeholder for power and for status and for security and for comfort and for the ability to get our way. Uh, and another reason that money sort of jumps off that list is because it's so stinking objective. So if I ask you if you have been generous with your heart this week, <laughs> who knows? Right? You can easily lie to yourself about that. Certainly lie to me. But if I ask you if you have been generous with your money, right? if you have given money to Christian ministry, if you have given money to the poor, Right, well, now there's a dollar amount that gets attached to that, and it's very specific. And so it just becomes a source of agitation. So I'm, we're going to look at a passage that's agitating. Uh, I'm thankful. I get grief all the time for spending five years working through the Gospel of Luke. But I'm thankful that I can always just default and say, you know what? We just take these passages as they come, right? And so now we come to one of these disruptive passages, but I, I didn't pick it. Uh, this is just, it's, it's the next section up in Luke. And so we come to this discussion that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. And uh, this guy, he's a hard charger. He's, he's rapidly mobile, upwardly mobile. And, uh, and he, he checks in with Jesus essentially to make sure that he's okay. 
right? What he wants to hear is that he's, he's good with God, that it's all, he's checked the boxes, he's done the right things, everything's fine. That's what he wants to hear. And uh, that's not what Jesus tells him. And what Jesus says to him is pretty unnerving. And so he goes away unnerved. The text will say sad. The Greek word really means disoriented. He's staggered by what Jesus says to him. And um, this, is a, this, is, this may not be your issue. Uh, Jesus is a, is a master teacher. We'll see that. Jesus is a great counselor. He has the ability to sort of incisively look into our hearts and figure out what all the small g gods are. And um, uh, he, he goes after those. I remember a while back, I was having a conversation with a rich young ruler. He was, a, uh, he was an academic. He was still in his 20s. But he had already finished his PhD. He'd written a book. And he'd just been on 60 Minutes. So he's, he, was, he was rapidly ascending. And uh, we bumped into each other socially and after some conversations, it, it, uh, it was uh, evident that he was not satisfied with the atheism that he advocated. He had just been in Russia for a while studying and he had come away not liking the implications of atheism and how it was playing out in society. So we have a number of conversations about Jesus and eventually he decides he wants to be a, a Christ follower. So we talk and, and, uh, and, and pray together, and then uh, he, he, he gives his heart to Jesus. And then we meet a couple times over the next couple weeks uh, to sort of get him launched down the right path. And um, during the end of one of those meetings, as we're going our separate ways, he says, uh, you know, I'm so glad to get this checked off, right? I'm just, I'm just, I'm so glad to sort of take care of this whole God part of things so that I can get on with my career. And now I've got God on my side. And he goes, you know, I'm, I'm excited about this. And I said, uh, oh, wow, have I misled you. <laughs> uh, no, look, the, what you just said, what, what's obvious by what you just said is God in your life is your career. And, uh, and, and that's a little G God. And when the big G God comes into your life, yeah, he doesn't leave little G gods alone. And uh, this, is, this is not going to go the way you think. And uh, I, I'm doing you a disservice to suggest otherwise. When God comes into our life, he finds the idols, the little G gods. And money is a pretty common idol for people. Uh, may not be your idol, um, but... Uh, it comes up a lot because it is an idol for many of us. So uh, Jesus goes after it. We're going to see this unfolding here. He's teaching Luke 18. I'm going to begin reading verse 18. So a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I'm calling him the rich young ruler. Luke doesn't, but there are parallel passages in Matthew and uh, Mark's gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke follow the same outline. And uh, in Matthew and Mark, they refer to this guy as the rich young ruler. So a certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So this is the question that you should be asking. Okay? This is a great question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I wish more people were asking this question. We live in a culture that is moving increasingly quickly 
And questions like this get pushed aside. Now, here's what I know to be true. Uh, most of you are very busy, right? You just, there's just a lot going on. And uh, you're going to have to make time for these questions. I was up uh, in Wisconsin this past week at a lake house writing. I'm working on the book for next fall. And the series is going to be, the sermon series is going to be out of Daniel, but the book is about the future. And in order to study the future and make projections about the future, you got to look at the past. The further ahead you want to look, the further back you got to look. And so I'm looking back and I'm looking at the present and I'm studying our culture and trying to figure out what the trends are and where all these things are headed. So one of the aha moments that I have is, uh, is that we have never had as much free time as we do today. I mean, 100 years ago, you worked to survive. 1820, the average life expectancy globally, 26, right? So you had 26 years during which, you know, you're working hard to bring in the crops and to keep things going and to manage the house and to take care of the kids. I mean, it was, it was full time every day just trying to survive. So today, we got all kinds of money or of, of time-saving devices. We're not growing our own food. Right? We, can, we can buy market solutions to all kinds of things. But because our wealth is so high, as money increases, as we have more money, we have more options. And as we have more options, we feel the constraint of time. Because there isn't time to do everything that we could do. So we feel busier and busier and busier. And questions like this, what must I do to inherit eternal life, get pushed aside when we go, well, I really need to do these three things, and I want to watch uh, season four or five or whatever it is of, you know, House of Cards or Game of Thrones or whatever. I got to get, I got to fit all these things in. And so questions like this one uh, don't get addressed. I'm here to tell you, you have to make time for these questions. These are the questions that are going to matter in light of eternity. So this, this uh, rich young ruler says, Good teacher, what must I do? He asks the right question. What do I do in order to be right with God? What do I do in order to, 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 to live forever? Be forgiven, gain eternal life. So Jesus says, why do you call me good? So here's, here's one of the things you got to understand. Everybody wants to make Jesus a good teacher. People want to recognize Jesus as a, as a moral authority, as a wise person, as a great guide. Jesus is never willing to accept that position. He is a good teacher. He's a brilliant teacher, right? Both the content, he gives us the greatest ethical system that we have, and the delivery. His parables alone qualify Jesus for the teaching hall of fame. He's a brilliant teacher. But... <laughs> He says to this guy, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. What he's saying is, look, you, you'll go this far, but I'm claiming to be God. If I'm not God, I'm not a good person. I'm not a good teacher, right? I'm a liar or I'm crazy. 
So he's always making that point. People want to say, wow, you're wonderful, you're wise, you're all these things. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not where this needs to go. I'm God. So why do you call me good? Um, Jesus answered, no one is good except God. Then he says, well, you know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. So he starts down the list of the Ten Commandments. There are actually 613 laws or religious rules in the first five books of the Bible. Um, so he's, the Ten Commandments sort of serve as the, as the basis of all of that. So he goes to the basis. He starts there. Oh, you, you know, and he's going through the list, and this guy immediately jumps in and goes, oh, yeah, 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 no, I'm good with that. All of these I've kept since I was a boy. Okay, well, denial's a wonderful thing and uh, helps us feel better about ourselves. And uh, in fairness to this guy, he may not have heard Jesus' exposition of the Sermon on the Mount in which he explains the standards. Uh, it's not just, you know, it's not just don't, uh, murder somebody, it's don't get angry. It's not just don't commit adultery, it's don't look at a, at a person with lust in your heart. So he, Jesus is going to explain the bar. Maybe he didn't get that. But anyway, he's feeling pretty good about himself. So Jesus heard this. He said, okay, well, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, um, if you come up to me after the service and say, Mike, you know what? I'm in. I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I've, I've been listening. I've sort of been auditing the whole Christianity thing for a while, but I'm ready now. I want to become a Christ follower. What do I need to do? Well, I'll, I'll ask you a couple questions like, well, what do you think you need to do? Uh, what, are you, what are you saying you're ready for? What, what's your understanding of how this is going to play out? And I'll be looking to hear you say something like, I, I understand I can't actually be good enough to please God, and I need help, and I'm looking to Jesus for that help. Something like that. And then I'll say, okay, well, so based on what we read Jesus saying in John 1 and John 3 and what, what John says in 1 John uh, 1 and 5 and the book of Galatians and Romans and based on all those things, I'll say, look, you can be born again. You can gain eternal life. You can be justified with God. You can have your sins forgiven. And you do that by, by sort of putting your weight down on Jesus. So let's pray and, and, and you put your weight down on Jesus. Agree with God that you're broken and you need help and that you're calling out for Jesus. Let's go forward. So that's the answer I'd give. <laughs> that's not the answer Jesus gives, Right? So this guy says, what must I do to gain eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, we'll sell everything, give everything you have to the poor, and then come follow me. So um, what gives? Why does Jesus say this? Especially since the last parable, and what we looked at two weeks ago, has Jesus sort of casting uh, dispersions against the, the Pharisee who uh, who was doing everything right and is praying, thankful that he's doing everything right, right? And it's the tax collector that Jesus says, no, this guy that's over there saying, you know, God have mercy on me, a sinner. <laughs> it's that guy that, uh, that is right with God. So why would he suddenly 
say, I want to applaud the guy that's doing all the religious things. Well, Jesus is not just a great teacher. Again, he is a brilliant counselor. And he understands what's going on in this guy's heart. He can see him more objectively than this guy can see himself. And what Jesus knows is that this guy doesn't get it. And he doesn't have an accurate understanding of himself. And, and the good news about being forgiven and granted eternal life is not good news if you don't think you need to be forgiven. Right? If you think you're good, I'm good, then you don't want someone saying, well, I'll, I'll, cover, you know, I'll cover you. You're, you're down. You're bad. You can't do it. You're like, no, no, no. I'm fine. I got this. I was reading in uh, The Guardian, a British uh, daily, a comment by uh, one of their columnists, Polly Torn, uh, Tornby. Tor- yeah, Polly Tornby. And Polly says in this article, of all the elements of Christianity, the most repugnant is the idea that Christ, who took our sins upon himself, sacrificed his body in agony to save our souls. I didn't ask him to do that. Right? So, look... I don't want a savior, right? Ted, Ted Turner, about 10 years ago, said a similar thing. Christians are weak people, right? This whole idea that you need help, I don't want help, right? I want to be strong myself. Christians are weak. I, you know, now, he's, about two years ago, he came out and said, of all the stupid things I've said, that was probably the most stupid, and I regret it. So he's changed his attitude. But look, we live in a culture increasingly where truth is whatever you decide it is. It's personal. The standards are fluid. And so a lot of people think, okay, I'm good. I'm sincere in what I believe. It's not a very accurate assessment. I mean, when you can really get people to slow down and think, I think most people would agree, I actually have a pretty hard time consistently keeping my own standards, let alone God's standards. But this guy doesn't get it. And so Jesus just sort of shoots one across the bow. Okay. You got it. You got it perfect. You've been perfect. Well, then do this. And, and it says, verse 23, when he heard this, he became very sad, again, disoriented, staggered, stunned, because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know if anybody here is a Bloom County fan. Um, you know, Opus and Billy Cat and Steve Dallas and Milo and all those. I was a big Bloom County fan in the 80s. Burke Breath of the cartoonist moved out to uh, the Pacific Northwest. I tried a couple times because I was doing some cartooning. I tried a couple times to meet with him. He finally sent a note saying, I'm far too dysfunctional to meet in public. So um, that, that ended that. But I, I remain a fan, and Bloom County came, started coming out again. It's online. You can only get it online, but you can get Bloom County, check in every day. And this past week, he had uh, deep thoughts with Opus. And Opus's deep thought was, uh, it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle if it's been through a blender first. <laughs> so that observation is really about on par with some of the observations that you get when you read the commentaries on this passage. 
there's a lot of crazy things people say. So one of them is that uh, this whole camel through the eye of a needle, that they're talking about camel thread. And they would take the camel hair and they would weave it into thread, and then, but it's coarse, and so it's hard to get that camel thread through the eye of a needle. Okay, uh, sounds interesting, except other people say no one has ever made thread out of camel hair. It's like this long, you know, so, so that, that isn't it. So then others say, well, uh, this is about the eye of the needle. It's a small passageway in a big door. So in the first century, everybody lived behind big walls, right? So you had your farm outside, but at night you had to be safe from the bad guys. So everybody huddled inside a village that had a a big wall around it. And the history of warfare is basically the history of people building bigger, thicker, stronger walls and other people coming by with different ways to break down those walls. So moats were put in because people would come with battering rams and try and break holes in the wall. So you put a moat around it. And then there was, there was uh, big, big towers where you could pour down, you know, boiling oil on people. It's a, to try and stop people coming with battering rams and breaking down the wall or breaking the gate. So one of the things they did is, is they put the doors on the side. So you couldn't get a battering ram uh, you couldn't get any speed with the battering ram because the, it was just a narrow passageway. The door was here. Other villages would put a tiny little door in the middle of the big door. And they would only open that tiny door uh, a- after dark. You, they wouldn't open the big door because they weren't going to let many people in. It would just be one person that could get in. And so it was very, very difficult to get a camel through the eye of that needle, that door. So there's all kinds of statements about what exactly this means. I think, look, Jesus is making a general observation. It's sort of like, you know, a snowball in in Miami's got a better chance of of surviving than a rich person has of getting into heaven. And uh, by the way, rich is always what somebody else is. Uh, you know, that's the standard. You, you, everybody else is rich. We're all rich, okay? So in light of world history, in light of, in light of current global economics, if you make $25,000 a year, then you are in the top 10%. If you make $50,000 a year, you're in the top less than 1%. So we're all rich. We're all rich, and this is a very scary statement that Jesus makes. And he's trying to get our attention. Now, um, the disciples ask, who then can be saved? Jesus replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. If we step back and consider everything that Jesus says about money, everything that the Bible teaches about money, then we we, we understand that, first of all, there is... uh, while the love of money is the root of all sorts of problems and evil, right, God will grant money to, to many of his people who are faithful. So we see it with Abraham, we see it with David and Solomon, we see it with Job, we see it with Joseph of Arimathea, Jacob. There are people who were being faithful to God, clearly in a relationship with God who had money. So money itself was not the disqualifier. Additionally, you read the book of Proverbs, and Proverbs will warn about money, and it will make it clear not many of us can handle money. 
It's like fire. We tend to get burned if we hold on to it. But there's also things, positive things that are said about money and saving money and the need to have a balance. So when, when Zacchaeus uh, decides to, to come to faith, right? Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree and he invites him. He says, Zacchaeus, today I'm going to a party in your house. And in the middle of the party, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to take 50% of my money and give it to the poor. Jesus says, today salvation has come into this household. Okay? He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, 50% is 50% too little. It's 100%. Right? He doesn't say that. And, and when, the, when uh, the Samaritan woman is in a conversation with Jesus at the well, uh, and, and they're talking about her spiritual state, right? at one point he says, go get your husband and come back and talk with me. And she says, well, I'm not married. And he says, right. And, and uh, you, you have had a long track record uh, of disasters with men. And, and you're looking to be completed in a relationship in a way that's not going to happen. Right? Her idol was not money, right? Her idol was these relationships. So Jesus goes to the idol that we have. Money may or may not be your idol, but it tends to be a default idol, right? It may not be number one, but it tends to be disruptive to us. So I want to share just a few um, observations about money. Things that, that we need to understand. I have five of them. Number one, money shields us from the truth. Money insulates us from the consequences of our actions. And the more money that we have, right, the, the further misguided we can be. Because if you have a lot of money, then the people around you are unlikely to tell you what is really going on. Because they like your money. So they're not going to say, you know, really clearly what, what's happening. They're, they're going to pull their punches because they want to stay close to you. And if they say what's really going on, you may not like them and not spend any time with them. The only person in that scenario who is likely to tell you what you're really like <laughs> is your spouse. Which is not a good dynamic. So money can get us in problems because we don't... Uh, always hear the truth. Number two, money takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time to make money. It takes some people their entire lives. They're never satisfied. So right up until the last moment, they're trying to make more money. Right? And it, it, it not only it takes your whole life to make money, but once you have money, then you gotta, you gotta manage it. And you gotta take care of the stuff that you bought with the money. And, and you got to spend it. It, it. Money can consume our life. And we never come around to asking the question, right, what do I do to gain eternal life? So money can take a lot of time. Number three, it's worthless in the end. Okay, you can't take it with you and it can't pay for your sins, right? Our moral debt is not something that money can pay off. And, and money cannot prevent our death or the death of those we love. So it's, it's ultimately going to come up short. Proverbs 11.4 makes this point worthless. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Number four, um, money tends to distort our view of ourself. People who make a lot of money tend to think they're smart about everything. And... Uh, 
but they're not necessarily. Now, if you're really smart in philosophy or you're really smart in physics or you're really smart in, you know, botany, you don't think you're smart about everything. Probably you're an academic and you don't have much money. So you don't think you're smart about money because you don't have a lot of money. But if you have a lot of money, you tend to think you're smart about everything. When I was a consultant, there were groups of people that I learned were really difficult to, to lead. So I did a, a fair bit of consulting with hospitals and insurance companies. And I came to realize teams full of doctors were a disaster. It just, it just did not matter. It was just a disaster because everybody thought that they were smart about everything. They were the smartest person in the room about everything. And it was really hard to try and work with a team of, of MDs and get them to move in a healthy direction. Um, it was also somewhat challenging to work with academics, but the, the people that you couldn't work with <laughs> were the people that had made $500 million, right? I had one company where a guy had started with nothing and he was worth somewhere north of a half a billion dollars and nobody would tell this guy anything. And I was doing consulting in the company and I'd say, okay, well, this is like a really bad plan. We know that, right? They go, yeah. I go, why, why isn't anybody telling him this is a bad plan? No, 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 no. He likes the plan. Okay, but it's a bad plan. We have, this is not going to work. Yeah, don't, don't bring it up. Okay, uh, because he won't listen. He doesn't listen. Okay, he'll pay you, but he doesn't want to listen. Okay, I did this. something's wrong about this. So uh, people who have money tend to think they're smart about everything, and it gets them into trouble. So Proverbs 30, verse 8 says, Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. But my, give me my daily bread, otherwise I may have too much and disown you. If I have a lot, then I'm going to think, you know what? I'm good on my own because I'm really something. Number five, uh, well, there's a long list that I could go on. Let me, let me just pivot and go to three pieces of advice for you. Number one, I want to encourage you uh, to identify the idols in your heart. And I want to, uh, I want to suggest that you'll be in denial, right? You, you are unlikely to be able to see them as clearly as other people may see them in you. But we have to identify the small G gods that are, that are controlling us. We have to identify them and recognize that they are, they are rivals to the big G God, and it's a bad plan. Secondly, uh, I want to encourage you to follow the example of the rich young ruler. Now, you're going, well, what, are you, what are you talking about, Mike? The rich young ruler walked away. He was not willing to do the right thing. No, uh, you have to keep reading and you have to keep thinking about what's actually happening here. You don't see this the first few times that you read this. But at some point, things come into focus and you go, oh my goodness, the real rich young ruler is Jesus. <laughs> right? I mean, he's 31, 32 years old. And while this guy's talking to him, right, and saying, uh, it's obvious, he's thinking when Jesus is giving him this advice, oh, well, it might be easy for you to give up what you had because you didn't ever have anything. But I've got a lot. 
and I'm not going to give it up. And Jesus knows this and thinks, right, I'm God. I was in heaven. I had everything. I created everything. And I gave all of that up in order to come down as a man and a servant and die in your place, right? I had everything and I gave it up in order to serve. He's the true rich young ruler. It's his example that we follow. And the third piece uh, of counsel that I would leave to you is to develop a plan. Sit down and figure out how much, what percentage of your money you're giving away. For some of you, it's nothing, okay? So start with 1%. I would say if you're less than 10%, you, you will regret it. You will regret it at some point, and you'll think, what was I thinking, right? I had all these resources in a short life, and here's all of eternity, and I can pay this stuff forward and invest it in God's kingdom, and I held on to it. So if you're giving less than 10%, I truly believe that you're going to regret it, but just take it one step at a time. Figure out what percentage you're giving away. To Christian ministry and the poor, maybe it's 2%. Say, okay, how do we get to 3%? How do I get to 5%? And just take it a year at a time. That's, that's been our path. We started at 10, and we just every year we try and go up a percent. Say, why, why would we hold on to this? Let's give more away. Let's be generous. We want God to be generous with us. We want God to be gracious to us. So we pay it forward, and we're generous. Let me pray for us. Lord God Almighty, we thank you that you are generous and gracious. You don't, you don't give us what we deserve, that uh, you sent your son. Christianity is not us trying to be good. It's not us reaching up. You so love the world that you gave your only begotten son, and, and, and in Christ we can be forgiven and gain everlasting life. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your generosity and graciousness. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the rich young ruler who, uh, who sets the example. You set aside all the rights and privileges and honors and perks of being God, all the things you deserved, you set it aside in order to come down and serve us and die in our place. We thank you and praise you for that. In the Spirit of God, we pray for clarity to be able to see ourselves, to see the idols in our heart, and to move forward Uh, to be like Jesus, to be generous, to be gracious. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.